2: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
3: Hello, everybody.
2: Now, for those of you who don't know about the show, the show's in a couple of parts. The first part we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, entertainment, and we're going to be talking a little bit about history today. We're going to be talking to Perry Jameson about the great general of the Civil War, Winfield Scott Hancock. And for a little bit of nostalgia, we're going to be talking to Marion Ross from Happy Days. First, let's see if we can work on uh, an email question about estate planning and elder law.
3: We're going to be talking about nursing home problems today. This is from Sheila, and her mom is in a nursing home, and it's approaching the 90 days um, that the Medicare authorizes or the end of it. She has assets. What steps should we take to protect her assets? Um, we will be getting in touch with Sheila because she left her telephone number and everything, but the 90 days is looming. What should Sheila do?
2: Okay. And we're going to be talking generally about nursing homes. What happens when you have a relative going into a nursing home? Step one, we have to look at the situation. Hopefully mom is mentally competent or has a PAV attorney. If she's able to sign a PAV attorney, we want to sign a PAV attorney. Hopefully she's mentally competent and we can go from there. So that's step one, no matter what. Because if if you're applying for nursing home Medicaid, there are a lot of transactions that have to be performed. And it's very hard to do that if you don't have a power of attorney. Because sometimes you have to move assets from one place to another. Obviously, if somebody's in a nursing home, they can't go to the bank. They can't perform some of these transactions. So what we want to do is mom married. If mom's married, the first thing we may want to do is transfer the assets from mom to dad then dad can sign a spouse refusal mom can get her medicaid nursing home bill picked up now dad at that point better protect his assets and put them in a trust soon after she's her application goes in but at least the first emergency step is being taken for and mom's bill could be paid by medicaid number two is there a disabled child and a lot of people don't realize this if if let's say mom has a disabled child, there are a lot of opportunities we can do with with disabled children because transfers either directly or in trust for a disabled child are exempt from penalty under Medicaid nursing home bills. Ordinarily, if you apply for nursing home Medicaid, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. But if you have a If you transfer assets to a spouse or a disabled child, there's no five-year penalty, no look-back. There's a look-back period to see if you transfer it to a spouse or disabled child, but there's no penalty attached to it. So literally, if somebody put everything in assets and trust for a disabled child today, they can apply for Medicaid, nursing home care, the first day of the month following the transfer. Then we look at the house. You know, does somebody, assuming mom owns a house, does somebody live in the house with mom? And if we have a brother or sister living in the house with mom, we can put that house in a trust protected from nursing home bills. If we have a brother or sister who lives in the house with mom, is paying some of the expenses on the house for more than a year, lived there more than a year, we can do that. If we have a son or daughter living in the same house with mom for two or more years. We can put that house in a trust and protect that house from nursing home bills. So those are the first things we look for, the exempt transfers, transfers to a spouse, transfers to a disabled child, transfer of a homestead. And by the way, the homestead can be a co-op, condo, house, that doesn't matter, with a brother or sister living in the same property for one or more years, transfer of the property homestead to a son or daughter who's living in the same property for two or more years, and in fact, by putting in a trust, even if there's more than one beneficiary, we can protect those assets from nursing home bills. Now, let's say none of those things apply. person's not married. They don't have a disabled child. They don't have a child living in the house. They don't have a brother or sister living in the house. What else can we do? There are certain gifts we can make Even if somebody is in a nursing home. Now, it has nothing to do with the IRS rules. Some people may say, oh, you can make $15,000 gifts to each one of your relatives because the IRS allows that. Well, that's true. If you give away less than $15,000 in a calendar year to any one person, you do not have to file a gift tax as far as the IRS is concerned. But that does not work for Medicaid. It's a completely different set of rules. In any event, even if somebody is going to a nursing home, there's certain gifts we can make. And in most cases, somebody going to a nursing home, we can save more than half their assets if if it's planned right and it gets a little complicated and i don't think we could do it in the hour we have on a show but if you ever want to go to our seminars we spend about 20 30 minutes on this and what are some of the things you can do if somebody's going to a nursing home in the near future but in the worst case worst case scenario we can usually save half the assets we can also spend assets you know let's say mom owns a house and it's in a trust we can put money into the house we can spend almost any amount of money in the house. And I think most of you know out there, if you have an old house, you'll, you know, your house is more than 50 years old. You can spend your money. You can improve your house. You can buy a car. Why do you want to buy a car if you're going to a nursing home? Because the car is an exempt resource. We can buy a car today, give it away later, save the money you put into the car from a nursing home bill. We can prepay a funeral. Why do you want to prepay a funeral? Because we pay the funeral and nobody else has to pay it later. You're allowed to keep $15,000 if you're single, if you're going to a nursing home. Again, if you're married, you may transfer substantial assets to the spouse. Your IRA money is protected, so we got to, you know, take a look at that. How much retirement money do we have? There are so many things that we can do, and we can make limited gifts, but it has nothing to do with the IRS rules. So basically we can give $12,000 away. We have to pay for one month in a nursing home. We give another $12,000 away, we pay for the second month in the nursing home. Now, I am simplifying it. It's more complicated than that, but that's the basic thrust and rule. But the main thing I would say, if you're in one of these situations where mom's in a nursing home and she's running out of her Medicare coverage, you want to schedule an appointment, you want to get things moving, because Medicaid works on a month-to-month basis. What we accomplish, let's say, during the month of May is done in May. What we do in June is June. So, In some cases, if somebody waits to come into the office on May 25th, and it's just before the Memorial Day weekend, we may have to wait for June before we can start an application for Medicaid. We may have to wait till July if things move slowly. So Medicaid works on a month-to-month basis. It's important to get in. And as soon as possible, to do some of the planning we need to do. And again, if you want to see us at Connors and Sullivan, you're more than welcome to do it, because the sooner you act, if somebody's in a nursing home, the better. And hopefully, the somebody who's in a nursing home is mentally competent, we would have a good PAV attorney. And that's one reason. Somebody with family, with family members they can trust. Everybody who's married and trusts their spouse, everybody who's got a son and daughter you can implicitly rely on, I strongly recommend you think about a PAV attorney. And I'm not just saying go out and sign a power of attorney because if you give it to the wrong person, you know they could wipe you out and they can steal you blind. But if you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse. You have a son or daughter you can implicitly trust. Please think about a power of attorney. Okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more.
3: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Wednesday, May 29th at Lenny's Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, Queens on Thursday, May 30th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. and at the Adria 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens on Friday, May 31st at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
3: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718- 238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at That's Connors & Sullivan 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
3: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
1: Connors & Sullivan Plan now for later.
4: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
2: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
3: And we have so much to tell you about what we did last
2: week. Well, what did we do last week?
3: We took the train, the Acela, down to Washington, D.C., and it was a lovely trip. And we got to Washington, D.C., and we had dinner with our Legatus friends, and we listened to the parents of Mr. Sandman, the young boy that was railroaded by the press saying he had been mean to the to the Indian man with the drum, and he hadn't been mean. So it was that was a very interesting thing.
2: Yeah, but one of the things that we picked up that we learned about is it, it wasn't a question of like the press. You know, they picked up and they wrote a negative story about him, which wasn't true. But then other people picked up on it, believed the press, and they would, what do they call it, doubt? Do- doxing doxing
3: doxing where they
2: put all his personal information out on the internet and in, in some respects were inciting people to kill him this is a teenager right this is a 16 year old boy and, and they're talking about even if he did some of the things they said he did which apparently right now it doesn't look like he did even if he did some of those things to deserve to be
3: one of them was an executive from walt disney
2: yeah and and and, and i mean to to Put a minor through this, and I really, if he was 21, it wouldn't be good, but put a a minor through this is an absolute disgrace. And I hope he's filed lawsuits against everybody. And I seriously hope he gets a a lot of money out of this just to teach these people a lesson because they have a reckless disregard for the truth and reporting the facts. Well, that was one of the things
3: things we saw last night, you know, on this Twitter, the Twitterverse. There are um, 10%. Of the people that are on Twitter are the ones that do the, that make the case for everything, do the reporting. 80% of the people on Twitter really have not that much to do with it. So when one of these awful stories that aren't true hits, all these 10% of loudmouths, as far as I'm concerned, take it and carry it on and on and on and on as if it's true. You start with a, a fallacy and you you take it on. Oh, it's horrible. And the the parents, a couple of times the father, you know, teared up because his son comes back from, I think that, I think the children were targeted because they were at the right to life march. And I think that's why they were standing, waiting for their bus to come pick them up. The bus was running late and they were standing there waiting for their bus. They couldn't leave because they had to wait for their bus and they were attacked by these awful people well so anyway the next morning was wonderful
2: it was the national catholic prayer breakfast
3: 1400 plus people and um once again we were with our legatus buddies and uh we weren't bored once there wasn't one speaker that bored and there were a whole bunch of people that came up um some of the most interesting uh, parts with the two people that came up that were talking about the the movies that were out and of course the star of the morning was unplanned um the woman who uh was the person who actually was the the manager at one of these um planned parented things she was the and she's the one that when she fir- when she actually saw what an abortion was. She just was horrified. And she's I, I don't know. I i have not seen the movie yet. I, I'm just waiting to go see it. And if, if anybody has seen the movie, you know, just let us know and tell us what you think. But um, the the prayer breakfast was just great.
2: And Nick Mulvaney from the White House, from the Trump administration, showed up, and he said that in every meeting that President Trump has with foreign leaders, he asks them what are they doing to help Christians in his country. He says it's part of a discussion. and you know, it's interesting because Father Paul has said this before, you know, on different occasions. Nobody was, it seemed like nobody cared about the Christians until President Trump was elected. And I mean, you can vilify him, you can do whatever you want. But at the same time, as Father Paul said, he's doing more for Christians than any of the presidents, you know, in the last 20, 30 years.
3: And one of the things in the prayer breakers, oh, we can't forget how important it is to pray. Um, there are people of faith are being attacked all around the world, and just begin your day and end your day, end your day with prayer. It it's important. It's important for the person that's praying, and I believe it's important for the whole world. So it was a it was a, a blessing
2: being there. Okay, we need to take a short break. Marion Ross from the Cunninghams.
0: with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
1: Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank and MLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church was actually a, a burden
0: to me.
3: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going.
0: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
1: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
0: We are enslaved to power, or to greed, or to wealth, or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
3: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person, I love it.
5: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
1: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you.
2: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, We invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today.
1: Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB.
2: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Mrs. Cunningham from Happy Days. Welcome to, to Connor's Corner, Marion Ross.
5: Hello, children. Very nice <laughs> to talk to you all. <laughs> Since I raised you all, you all turned out so well. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I don't think there are a lot of us children out here, but may, maybe back then some of us were in our 20s or something. But <laughs> Now, you have a book out. What's it about?
5: Yes. Well, it's, it is it's a book of my life. It's so funny. My son, Jim Meskerman, who is an actor. This guy to the house, mother, and he's going to write your book. I said, no, 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 I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. And then the next thing I know, there they are at the house, and they tie me to a chair, right? And they get me talking, and so now we have a book. It's called My Days Happen and Not So Much and Otherwise.
2: Let's go back in time. How did you start getting into acting? What What was your first professional role?
5: Oh well. It was even before that. I'm from Minnesota. And, you know, we had long, long, hard winters. I'm from Albert Lee, Minnesota, south, 100 miles south of Minneapolis. And uh, my mother was a Canadian, and I was raised to be think you can be anything, you know? And I, I'm being a middle child, were you a middle child?
2: No, but go ahead.
5: No. <laughs> it's, anyway, it gives you a lot of drive to be somebody. And uh, so that's, uh, by the time I was oh, 13, 14, I, boy, boy, I would go to the library and read who's who famous people and read books about actors' lives, and I was going to be something. Sure. And you know what? I did it. Isn't that something?
2: Yes, it is. You know, how many people try to it be is. an actor or actress, and they never really become a working actor, that he can't make a living out of it, and you accomplished
5: that. I did. In fact, I was under contract to Paramount Studios by the time I was 23. Can you believe that? Something. Yes. It's only now looking back that I think to myself, wow, that's pretty pretty, pretty hard to do. But I did it.
2: Now, I understand you were the maid in Life with Father on TV.
5: Oh, I was. I-
2: did you like that?
5: <laughs> I, was an, I I, loved it. I was, I was playing. It had an accent, an Irish accent. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a very, and you know, we did it live at CBS. Live. That music goes on, and there you are. And you can't make mistakes, but although we did, we did. So those were, those were very fun days.
2: Now, who are the stars of that show?
5: It was Leon Ames and Lorene Tuttle, and Lorene Tuttle was a very famous radio actress her and, and Leon Ames was president of Screen Actors Guild at that time and uh, it was just um, we had a live audience out there Can that be Wonderful.
2: a yeah, live audience, and then you're being taped for t v
5: not only tape, you're going out live uh-huh.
2: you're going out live
5: you're going out okay you' I'll going out live no. Yeah.
2: Now let me understand. You were in Operation Petticoat. Who were you?
5: I was one of the nurses, one of the Navy nurses. It was Cary Grant and Tony Curtis, and we went to Key West, Florida, and filmed there with the Pink Submarine. And all of these wonderful—I've had wonderful adventures, I must say.
2: Well, you're you're working with two legends right there, Cary Grant and Tony Curtis. Oh,
5: absolutely.
2: How'd you feel as a young actress? You know, being being with superstars so to speak
5: well i wasn't so young by that time i was 30 i was 30 and and i was uh, sitting up on this uh, on the conning tower of this submarine this pink submarine and i'm telling Cary grant that i can't go down in the submarine because i'm i'm just i'm pregnant i'm two months pregnant and he started to cry and we Cary Grant and I had this wonderful moment together.
2: You know, well, that's something that's going to be seen 100 years from now. That's a little bit of immortality because, you know, who who <laughs> right. is... And
5: who what, is, a lovely, what a lovely guy, Cary Grant. He was absolutely lovely guy. And also Tony Curtis. I love Tony Curtis.
2: Now, who's the director of that film?
5: It was Blake Edwards.
2: Which Pink Panther, just a few years later.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. So we all had a very, very good time.
2: Did you think Blake Edwards was Down a future in- genius? <laughs>
5: Yes. We knew at that time that he was. Yeah. Yeah. Something. All those Pink Panther movies, you know?
2: Right. Right. Now, how'd, how'd you end up on Happy Days?
5: I I, I was, I, I know how, I, it was kind of a long story. I, I was so broke. I was broke. And I was divorced. And now, and now I'm like getting near to being 40 years old. And I got two children to raise. So I go to George Seaton and I say, they were doing a movie called airport and they needed a lot of actors to be on the plane. We didn't have parts. We were passengers, but we all had to be very good actors to be on this plane. So I asked George Seton if I could be in his movie. And he said, sure. What do you want a part or a long part? I said, a long, a long part. So while I'm on this movie, I meet Sandra Gould from the, Bewitched. Remember Sandra Gould? Yes. So she says, Won't you and I tell her my story, my divorce, everything. She and she says, Why don't you come to dinner? And I come to dinner. She has Millie Gussie, a casting woman there. And the casting woman said, and the, nobody else. And she says, Well, you'd be good in this um in this little pilot we're making about happy days, you know. So that's how I got called into that. So if I reel it back, had I not gone to be in Airport, I wouldn't have met Sandra Gould. She wouldn't have invited me to dinner, and then meet the casting woman. You know, it's a little journey in life, isn't it?
2: Right. And did you think when you started Happy Days that people are still going to be talking about the series? You know, thirty years later.
5: No, it's <laughs> almost it's like thirty five years later. Right. So it's amazing. And you know, I'm very, very close to Henry Henry Winkler, and I are very good friends, and. He's he's now in a movie called Barry, oh, no, it's a series called Barry.
2: Yeah. Oh, really? Do you know what it's about?
5: Uh, well, yeah, it's a very it's very successful. They're into their second year now, so you'll have to turn it on. Okay? I guess I
2: do. You know, I'm behind the times some some you know, days. No, you've got
5: to catch up, baby. You I do have to catch up.
2: up. <laughs> All right, now you did a lot of TV work after that. What what are your favorite experiences?
5: Well. I did a show that nobody saw called Brooklyn Bridge, and I played a Jewish-Polish grandmother. So not only did I have accent, I had a whole cultural difference, and that was really my favorite role. And that was for David Gary Goldberg, who did – he did that series – what was his series called? I forget but uh, David Gary Goldberg. So and I'm hardly Jewish, you know, I'm not Jewish at all. I'm Scotch-Irish. So that was that wasn't really my favorite. All right. Now,
2: your book, what do you want the reader to get out of your book? Why did you write it?
5: Well, you know, everybody in the cast wrote a, a little chapter. So in the whole last part of the book is a chapter from everybody. And and that's what's so warm about it. Dear, we're the public knows us all very well. And it's just very nice to talk about it. And uh, of course, even, uh, even Erin Moran, who then died the next year, but she wrote a chapter, Gary Marshall wrote a chapter and he has now passed on. So, we were sort of television history.
2: No, there's no question you're part of history. Again, did you know you were working with another genius in, in Ron Howard?
5: Well, do you know that? Pretty early on. Yep. Yep. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah. Really. It was amazing. He would. He was always so orderly and watchful. And sometimes uh, the, the cameraman would be arguing, do I pass that plate of of bacon from the right or the left, and Ron would quietly say to me, "Do do do that from the right." Yeah, because <laughs> he knew he knew camera. He knew camera right away.
2: That's interesting. Of course, obviously, it's it, it's logical and it makes sense because he did, didn't become a director overnight. But that that's an no, interesting observation. He wanted observation.
5: to be a director. Yeah, yeah, he wanted to be a director, and uh, I'm not sure what he's working on right now. But what a lovely guy he is. And his lovely daughter, Bryce, you No. Know?
2: Well, that's nice to hear. So what do you have to say to the people in New York, Mrs. Cunningham?
5: I, I love being part of Americana. You know, I pretend I know all of you, you know? Isn't that nice? Yes, it is but very nice. I think nice. you all grew up so well.
2: It's a nice <laughs> yeah. sentiment.
5: You all, you all grew up so nicely. And I, I guess Happy Days is still running somewhere, right?
2: I think it's going to be running somewhere all the time. You know, probably 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
5: Yeah, like that and the Andy Griffith show, too, you know. So Ron is forever on that tube.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess he's immortal in a way, as are you.
5: (laughs) Well, thank you. I I would like to be. I'd like to be.
2: Well, thank you for being on Connor's Corner.
5: Thank you, my darling. I enjoyed being it so much, and my best wishes to all of you. And thank you for calling me. Bye-bye.
1: Goodbye whether you need help with drafting a will or trust power of attorney health care proxy living will or protecting your assets from nursing home costs Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests the professionals at Connors and Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for
2: over 30 years I'm Mike Connors come to our office for a free initial consultation talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family your assets and your legacy there's no one
1: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and
0: publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much
1: longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
2: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On May thirteenth, two thousand and nineteen, the Three West Club, three West Fifty First Street, Civil War Roundtable is going to be meeting. And and the subject is going to be the great general Winfield Scott Hancock, the speaker, Perry Jameson. Welcome to Connors Corner, Perry.
4: Well, thank you very much. Good afternoon to you and your listeners, and thanks for having me.
2: First question. You know, and it may sound obvious, but not all listeners know that much about the Civil War. Who was Winfield Scott Hancock?
4: Well, he was a great Northern Civil War general, a Union or Federal or Northern Civil War general. He was born in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and was a career soldier. He had a long career in what Civil War veterans called the Old Army. Northern and Southerners would say that they had served together in the Old Army, that is, the Army before the Civil War he had A distinguished career there, he fought in the Mexican-American War, and uh, when the Civil War began, he was very quickly promoted to brigadier general and given responsibility for a brigade, which he led very well in 1862 and 1863. Uh, He was probably best known before the Pennsylvania campaign or the Gettysburg campaign for his service at Williamsburg, old colonial Williamsburg Virginia. There was a battle there on the 5th of May, 1862, that Hancock figured in prominently. And uh, the Union Army suffered a very bad defeat in early May of 1863 at Chancellorsville. And there uh, Hancock led his, uh, by then he had been promoted from brigade to division command. And uh, Hancock managed uh, to use his division to cover the retreat of the Army of the Potomac, the Northern Army, across the Rappahannock, after he'd been defeated at Chancellorsville. So, probably because of Williamsburg and Chancellorsville, Hancock was very well known in the Army uh, coming into the Pennsylvania or Gettysburg Campaign.
2: Okay, so we set the stage early July 1863. Where are we? Where, where's Hancock? Where's the Federal Army? Where's General Lee?
4: Well, General Lee uh, began the campaign down on the Rappahannock River after he had defeated Major General Joseph Hooker and the Northern Army at Chancellorsville that I mentioned. On the 3rd of June, General Lee began moving north uh, across the Potomac for the second time. He had come into Maryland in September of 1862 and been uh, driven out. So this was his second invasion north of the Potomac. And this time he got significantly farther north. He got into southern Pennsylvania. But uh, by late June 1863, the Southern Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's Army, was spread out across southern Pennsylvania. It was pretty well scattered. And uh, also what's always pointed to is uh, General Lee's very reliable uh, cavalry commander, Major General James Ewell Brown Stewart, Jeb Stewart, had taken his cavalry, with General Lee's permission, uh, on a raid off to off to the east. And as the Union Army crossed the Potomac and pursued Lee into Maryland, the Union Army was between... Jeb Stuart, and the main body of the Confederate Army. So Lee was had two problems in late June 1863. His army was scattered across southern Pennsylvania, and his main source of intelligence, his cavalry, uh, was out of communication with him. So Uh, Lee, rather uh, reluctantly, he entered a meeting engagement uh, outside of the town of Gettysburg in southern Pennsylvania on Wednesday, the 1st of July, the morning of Wednesday, the 1st of July, 1863. And Lee, uh, although his orders to the division commander who brought on that uh, engagement had been not to bring on a major engagement until the army, his army, was better concentrated uh, the Confederates found themselves with a meeting engagement on their hands at uh, at Gettysburg. I should say too quickly, on the Union side, uh, General Hooker had lost the confidence of President Abraham Lincoln because he'd lost the Battle of Chancellorsville, and he was dismissed from command. He uh, he got into dispute with President Lincoln and President Lincoln's military advisors over the, what should be done with the Harpers Ferry garrison, And because of that dispute, Hooker put himself in a bad position. He threatened to resign, and to his surprise, uh, President Lincoln quickly accepted his (laughs) resignation. The president was looking for an opportunity to uh, ease Hooker out of the scene. So on the 28th of June, as I said, the Battle of Gettysburg will begin on the 1st of July. So the 28th of June, just really a matter of hours before the great battle will begin at Gettysburg, Uh, Major General George Gordon Meade is going to replace uh, General Hooker. So the Union Army is in some ways in good shape. It's well-concentrated around Frederick on the 28th of June, but it has a brand-new commander. It has to make a change of command on the move.
2: And at that point, what was General Hancock's position? General Hancock,
4: uh, as I said, had distinguished himself at brigade and division levels, and on the 22nd of May, 1863, The commander of the uh, 2nd Corps of the Army and Civil War armies were divided into corps and the commander of the 2nd Corps, Major General DM Couch, was so disgusted with uh, General Hooker and the way he had mishandled the army at Chancellorsville that he resigned and General Hancock replaced uh, General Couch. He was promoted because of his successful record. Hancock was promoted to succeed Couch on the 22nd of May, 1863. So uh, Hancock in the Pennsylvania campaign would be at a uh, core level. He would have that kind of responsibility for the first time.
0: The
2: battle opens up on July 1st. Where's Hancock?
4: Hancock at that time was with his corps uh, at Tawnytown, Maryland, which was uh, down across the Pennsylvania-Maryland line, but it's only about uh, 12, 13 miles due south of Gettysburg. And uh, the Army Commander himself, General Meade, was at town that morning. And when General uh, Hancock came in with his second corps, he had his men go into bivouac and rest. They had made a very, very long, hard march two days earlier, and they badly needed the rest. and Then Hancock himself reported to General Meade. And Meade, again, shows the kind of uh, confidence that uh, the senior leadership had in Hancock. Hancock receives a very thorough briefing from Meade about where the Union Army is and where General uh, Meade believes the Confederate Army is. So Hancock, uh, on the morning as the battle is beginning, has a pretty good picture as just General Meade himself of what's going on up in Pennsylvania.
2: The battle is on just Cut to the chase. General Reynolds is killed in action. When does Hancock appear on the battle?
4: Uh, Hancock arrived there probably about four o'clock that afternoon. General Meade had decided that just for him to stay at Tawnytown, where all of his corps commanders knew where he was and he could communicate with him, but he wanted to send a reliable uh, subordinate. He knew he could do no better than Hancock, so he sends Hancock on up ahead to represent him, to take command of all the Union forces that are already at Gettysburg, General Reynolds, as you uh, said, was the commander of the First Corps, had been killed. And uh, so General Meade wants Hancock to do two things, find out for him what's going on up there at Gettysburg. And secondly, he wanted to make a decision as to whether or not he should take on generally, whether the great showdown battle with Lee would take place at Gettysburg. Or General Meade had had his chief of artillery and his uh, chief engineer draw out a defensive line down in Maryland of about 13 miles long along Pipes Creek. And as late as the morning of the 1st of July, Meade hadn't firmly decided whether he would fight a defensive battle behind Pipes Creek or whether he would fight general lee somewhere else so he wanted a reading from general hancock how good is the gettysburg battlefield would it be better to fight general lee along the pipes creek line or would it be better to fight him at gettysburg
2: i guess we know the answer to that question (laughs) right because we're not talking about the pipe battle of pipe creek so right hancock is there on the battlefield and we're running out of time a little bit so third day Pickett's charge where's hancock
4: uh, Hancock played a very crucial role uh, on Friday, the 3rd of July, the last day of the battle. Two days after uh, the 1st of July the battle that opened the battle, Hancock is right in the center of the battlefield. And by then, uh, General Meade has taken up a very strong defensive position. And the center of that line, uh, General Hancock has a responsibility not only for his own 2nd Corps, but from other some other units on each side of his Corps, which again shows the kind of confidence that uh, Meade had in Hancock. And Hancock plays a crucial role in defeating the famous, uh, if mis- misnamed, Pickett's Charge, a grand Confederate sack right into the center of the Union Army uh, on Friday afternoon, the 3rd of July. Uh, that attack is aimed right at the center of Hancock's position. Hancock did a couple of things. He, before the attack was made, the Confederates fired probably 135 cannon and a great cannonade to to, uh, try to weaken the Union position. And uh, Hancock, who was always known to be a fearless uh, frontline leader, Hancock rides on his horse calmly through the cannonade the whole length of his line to show his men, we can endure this, we can survive this. uh, Hancock was a great personal and inspirational leader. And then secondly, when the attack does come, Hancock had Make some tactical decisions. He moves some of the troops around to better deal with the Confederate troops, who so at one point, of course, did break the Union line. Probably not many Confederates—150 or so. No one knows how many did break through the Union line, but they were contained by the efforts of uh, Hancock and others.
2: What happens to Hancock? And
4: uh, he was very severely wounded right near the end of that. Uh, right near the end of that action, and so and so wounded. Uh, he never really recovered from in the field. He he went home to uh, have his wound treated, and he he eventually sort of recuperates. But he tries to come back to the army in December of eighteen sixty-three. That proves too soon. He just can't uh, can't do it. He finally returns to the army in March of eighteen sixty-four. So he's with the army when General Grant arrives and begins what will turn out to be the great final. Uh, encounter between General Grant and General Lee and the beginning of the Battle of the Wilderness and the Virginia Campaign. By that time, Hancock was back in the field. But Hancock was always a big man, and he put on a lot of weight uh, because he was forced to be sedentary while he was recovering from his wound. And he really never was himself uh, physically uh, again after the, the Gettysburg wound.
2: All right. After the war, what happened to Hancock?
4: Yeah, General Hancock uh, lived until 1886, and he really saw, not only saw, but he participated in a lot of the main events of uh, 19th century American history. He had a brief uh, career as a commander in the warfare against the natives out on the plains. He fought against the the Indians uh, out on the plains uh, briefly and unsuccessfully. It turned out Hancock was much better at the kind of conventional warfare that the Civil War uh, the Civil War had some guerrilla warfare, but almost all of Civil War uh, combat and, and almost all of Hancock's experience with it was conventional warfare. And Hancock was very good at that, but he was not as successful at either negotiating with the Native chief leaders or at fighting uh, against the Native warriors. He also had uh, a brief and unsuccessful reconstruction career. He was Commander for a time of the Reconstruction Department that included Louisiana and uh, Texas. And he found that, as almost all uh, federal officers did after the Civil War, Reconstruction duty was kind of a no-win proposition for them. And then finally, of course, uh, most famously, Hancock ran for president in 1880. Unsuccessfully, of course, he was defeated by James Garfield. So he had quite a long and and wide-ranging career.
2: Now what states did did Hancock carry in that campaign?
4: Uh it's a very uh it's a very interesting story. Hancock uh in some ways uh came fairly close to winning the election. The electoral vote was 214 to 155, but uh Hancock lost by only about 7,000 popular votes. And your state in New York at that time had 35 electoral votes. So if Hancock had carried New York, uh, he would have been president. It was the election was closer than it looked like uh, at first. The general answer to your question is the the party politics then were still, even as late as 1880, still pretty largely sectional. So Southerners still tended to vote Democratic and. Uh, Northerners, Republican.
2: So Hancock, Hancock carried some Southern states.
4: Most of his strength yes. would have been in the South, right?
2: And why was that?
4: Uh, going way back before the war, of course, uh, slavery existed in the southern in the Southern states, and and uh, when the Democratic Party before the Civil War was divided, it was divided largely along North South. Uh, Lines And Southern uh, Democrats, of course, wanted slavery protected, wanted to use – they wanted states' rights kept strong so state laws could protect uh, slavery, and they wanted slavery to be – they wanted slaveholders to be able to expand uh, what they viewed as their property, human uh, property, into the new Western territories. So white Southerners tended to be uh, Democrats uh, before – the Civil War, and consistently so during, during the war. And the parties were still pretty much, uh, again, even after Reconstruction, were still pretty, uh, pretty much divided along sectional lines. Now, I should say, during the war uh, and before, just before the war, when the Civil War crisis, as a secession crisis, was approaching the 1850s, the Democratic Party in the North uh, became divided. And uh, when the war came, there were some Democrats who felt that, well, Lincoln and the Republicans, uh, as usual, don't know what they're doing. We have nothing to do with them. They're fighting a needless war. They're getting thousands of men killed. Uh, We shouldn't be raising our arms against our southern brothers and sisters, so on and so on. But there was also a a much larger faction of the Northern Democratic Party that were called pro-war Democrats or simply war Democrats who disagreed with President Lincoln on just about everything except the crucial issue of the day, that the Union had to be preserved, and therefore the war was necessary. So there were any number of uh, senior leaders in the Union Army like Winfield Scott Hancock, uh, George V. McClellan who were uh, pro-war Democrats. They were politically opposed to the president on just about everything else. McClellan, of course, ran against Lincoln for president in 1864. But on the fundamental question that secession was illegal and the Union and the Constitution had to be preserved, uh, men like Hancock uh, risked their lives to fight for the Union.
2: I've got one last question. Movie Gettysburg. How did you feel, or what was your impression of the portrayal of Winfield Scott Hancock by Brian Mallon?
4: I think he did a fine job. Of course, we have no idea of what General Hancock sounded like. Uh, What we have are uh, letters written by his soldiers, uh, uh, remarks that uh, soldiers make in their letters and diaries about Hancock, uh, memoirs of officers who served with uh, Hancock. And uh, most famously, uh, Hancock's personal papers went to his wife, Elmira uh, Hancock. So we don't have uh, uh, Hancock's uh, own autobiography. So what we have, of course, is a written record, primary sources from uh, soldiers at the time of Hancock's military bearing. He was famous for his profanity. He was famous for his bold leadership. I mentioned earlier under fire, his his uh, fearlessness, and so we have a pretty good sense about the man, at least what his command style was like, uh, what his character was like, if not the details of his uh, of his speech and appearance. And I think I think Melan uh, Melan filled the bill. It's a it's a it's a good performance. It matches up with what we know from the sources that have survived.
2: You have a book about Hancock. What's the name of him? Where can we get it?
4: That That is called Winfield Scott Hancock, Gettysburg Hero. And it was published in 1994 by the McQuinney Foundation Press. And I'm sure your li- uh, listeners can find that online. They can either look up my name, Jameson, J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N, Perry Jameson, or the title of the book, Winfield Scott Hancock, Gettysburg Hero, McQuinney Foundation Press.
2: Are you going to have copies of the book at the 3 West Club on on May 13th? Oh, I certainly
4: will. Yes, I will. Mm -hmm.
2: So if somebody wants a book, they can get it autographed there on May 13th. There we go. Yep. 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, off 5th Avenue, doors open at 530. You have to call for reservations at 718-341-9811, 718-341-9811. Perry Jamison, thank you for bringing history to life.
4: Well, thank you, and uh, I wish you well your listeners well, and thanks again for having
2: me. Now, if if you want to hear Mr. Jameson at the Civil War Roundtable, call us at 718-341-9811. The meeting's going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, off 5th Avenue, on May 13th, Monday. Perry Jameson is going to be talking about Winfield Scott Hancock, who is one of the favorite generals of a lot of people during the Civil War. A very interesting character. So again, give us a call at 718-341-9811. The cost for members is $50, but if you're a member, you should already know that. For non-members, it's $60. And listen, I love the the New York Historical Association, stuff like that. But in a lot of cases, you sit in an auditorium for an hour, you pay almost as much. At the Three West Club, you get a three-course meal. You can ask your questions. At the end, the guest isn't taken out where you can't speak to the guest speaker. The guest speaker usually hangs around. A lot of times they're staying in the same building, so they're not going anywhere.
3: It's a very intimate setting.
2: Next week, you know, we're going to have on one of the great actresses of the 50s and 60s, Deborah Paget. And, and Deborah Paget was in The Ten Commandments. He said she worked with Vincent Price five times. I didn't realize that. I know she worked in a couple of Roger Corman movies. And, of course, Vincent Price was in The Ten Commandments with
3: her. When I found she grew up in the Fox... Um, system. Right. With Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. He was a male guy. mailman, te- mailman When they were teenagers.
2: Not only that, she had a great career. Jimmy Stewart, Broken Arrow. The Last Hunt, Robert Taylor and Stuart Granger. Stars and Stripes Forever, Clifton Webb, Robert Wagner. Demetrius and the Gladiators with Victor <laughs> Your <Bichur>.
3: favorite. <laughs>
2: you know, and then she did some of those Vincent Price horror movies in, in the 60s. So, and... and She's a witness for Jesus right now. So very interesting interview. Lovely, and of lovely. course, Elvis proposed to her and she'll be talking about that who
3: knew that. Bit. And her parents said no. But he wanted to get married. And she was in love with him too.
2: Next week, Deborah Padgett on Ask the Lawyer. David Kincaid is telling us to go home. Bye-bye, everybody.
3: Thank you for listening to us.
1: We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this the away. We are, gathered we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down, we're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Ask the lawyer friends and listeners. You can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law,
3: Medicaid, wills and estate planning and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Wednesday,
1: May 29th at Lenny's Clambar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth, Queens on Thursday, May 30th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. and at the Adria 220. 21-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, on Friday, May 31st at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
3: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com.